Today I am with Dan Anir, and Dan, you are a counselor, and you immigrated to the U.S. from Australia recently, and we corresponded about some issues around COVID, as well as some of the issues with within the counseling work that you do and, and professionally. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your experiences and your perspective. So would you mind starting off by just saying a little bit more about your background? Yeah, absolutely. Um, firstly, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's really fun. I saw your video and one of your videos and, and the one that probably a lot of people have seen on the pronoun topic. And I just thought, Oh, she really just explained that in a succinct way. So I thought I'd reach out and, and here we are. Um, yeah, so I've been in the US. We're currently in Minnesota. I've been here since September last year. My wife is Minnesotan and yeah, I've been here yeah for about a year now. Um, and we have three kids. And yeah, we moved here from Adelaide, South Australia, which is where I'm from, which is where I was born and spent my whole life. And um yeah, been married to my wife um, for 13 years now, and we spent that whole time living in Adelaide in, in Australia, and so moving back was a, was a really big thing. Uh, as you said, I, I'm, a, I'm a relationship counsellor primarily. That's, that's what I stumbled in. It wasn't, it wasn't ever my plan. I always wanted to be a counsellor, and I've always worked in sort of some kind of helping people industry. Um, but yeah, shortly after starting my private practice in Australia, I had, I had a couple come in and yeah, it was just this revelation. It was like, oh, I love this. It just, it, it just fits me really naturally, really organically. Um, which I'm really lucky about. Cause as you know, <laughs> I suspect, uh, most counselors, therapists, psychologists, uh, don't want to work with couples. They're like, oh, I don't, I don't want to touch that. Right. And so I was like, okay, I've got a passion and there's a hole in the market and let's, let's go down that journey. And, and so I've been doing that for some years now and I, I really enjoy it. So I did that in Australia and I'm doing that here in Minnesota as well. Well, yeah, that's really interesting what you say about couples and it just fit for you. I, I have not worked with couples very much. I did some training when I was in graduate school and I have worked with families a little bit, but I, I think that, and, you know, this for me, I'm still very new in this whole process of practicing what I call coaching and um, yep. is not licensed counseling, but working with people. And I find it sort of intimidating to work in that dynamic. I, I, yeah. I find it challenging to work with, you know, multiple people in the room. So uh, it's really interesting that it just fit for you. How mm. what what do you find to be really rewarding about that work? Yeah, well, I'll answer the question you didn't quite ask, but, you know, maybe implied. I was actually kind of set up to work with couples unintentionally. Mm. Because I have a background in Australia, I worked um, what they call a support worker. So it's it's essentially boots on the ground with clients. And I, and I work with a whole range. So I work with youth work like youth for for a while so that's kids under the guardianship of the minister that have been removed from their family mm -hmm. highly traumatized i did the same type of role in disability and i did the same type of role with clients with mental health issues and all three of those but especially the youth work you're dealing with multiple personalities in the room you're dealing with heightened situations. Um, I spent a bit over a year working with a young young man who was 10, uh, and it was just myself and a co-worker plus him. Mm. So he always had two staff. Mm. And so I became, I mean, I think I'm probably naturally wired to be able to manage mm. different people's emotions and try and, it feels a bit like a chess game, right? Or what should I do? What should I say? I want to keep everyone calm. Uh, but then I was like, just thoroughly immersed in that. Mm. How do I stop my young person from escalating yet make sure he eats his breakfast or gets ready for school or whatever it is. And so when, when I had a couple come in and the first few couples, while I was still learning, uh, it escalated a little, right? They started arguing in front of me and part mm. of me is like, Oh my goodness. Like, you know, there and part of, but a bigger part of me was just like, I can do this. Mm. Like I've had youth, like smash windows in front of me and like bash holes in the door. And wow. Yeah. And so, yeah, really intense, you know, um, now granted 
they generally weren't of any risk to me because I was mm-hmm. working with younger people, uh, still pretty full on. Yeah. Um, and so, so I think that sort of set me up for it. But, um, but specifically your question, yeah, I find it really rewarding to manage the emotional dynamics in the room, manage the energy. You know, there's an energy between a couple getting esoteric, but it, you know, it's like there's the one person, the other person, there's kind of like an energy that they create. Mm-hmm. And so what I like about couples as opposed to singles is I feel like I can use that energy, right? Mm. It's like, you know, okay, they're arguing, but that means there's some passion there. That means there's some buy-in. That means there's some care. So like, you know, I can see you, you know, you really feel that like it's, it's great. It shows that you still care about each other. You're still in, you know, and so you kind of manage, manage that energy mm-hmm. um, while simultaneously going, what am I doing? Where am I going? What should I say? Should I do some self-disclosure? Should I use this technique? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've studied personality typology as well. So that's one of my um, other passions. Actually, I didn't study it to work with couples, but once I started working with couples, I was like, man, this is, this is brilliant. This is perfect. Like, hmm. and, I, and I've come to realize not many people are using personality typology working with couples, maybe because it's been kind of poo-pooed as not being scientific hmm. or evidence-based, hmm. Hmm. which actually has changed in the last handful of years. Um, so I'll bring that in as well. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that background. Hmm. Yeah, no worries. So you you said your practice is relatively new, like just a it was just a few years old when you when COVID hit and yep. things started to change. So what I you know, could you talk a little bit about that? What was that process? Because I know at some point during the COVID lockdowns, you decided to move to the US. Was that in response yes. to what was going on in Australia? It was. Yes, it was directly in response. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so 2000, 2020, so 2020 when it all began, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've had a bit of a background in um, personally around like alternative health measures because I've had my own health issues and I mm-hmm. kind of like went to the doctors, went mainstream and they couldn't help me and in many instances didn't even have a a try of helping, right? And then I had a doctor who who said, you could go see this osteopath, which is in Australia, that's quite a bit similar to a chiropractor, a bit, I think they're quite yeah. kind of different here. Uh, I don't really know what it's all about, but I've sent some of my patients there and it seems to have helped. And so that sort of started me on a journey from going mainstream to more alternative mm-hmm. modalities and I'd cleaned up my diet. And anyway, it's a whole whole nother story. But this all happened years before COVID. And so I already had a, a different paradigm on health, on, on wellness, on the human person, on psychology and all that. And so when COVID came down and like had my own perspectives on um, how, you know, the pharmaceutical industry was exerting a lot of power and a lot of influence over, um, well, really all, all levels of the health system. Um, and so when COVID started, I spent my, about the first three weeks in a bit of a haze. I remember walking around and I was doing mental health type of work at that point. And I was helping, um, a young man with schizophrenia do his shopping and, and I could, I was absorbing this anxious energy from everyone because I'm mm-hmm. very sensitive like that. Um, and I was in a, in a haze for about three weeks and then I finally realised, you know, I kind of shifted it. I was like, what's happening? But I realised, oh, these people are like, they're worried. Mm-hmm. They're like worried about this virus, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're legitimately scared. Ah. Oh. <laughs> Because I was worried and legitimately scared, but for a totally different reason. Mm-hmm. My 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 brain was future projecting, going, "This is a power grab. Like, mm-hmm. government mm-hmm. is going to use this opportunity." And I wasn't necessarily thinking it had been created and engineered to be this way. I didn't have a view on that. I was just like, "I know what governments do with crises. They 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 take them uh, and, and use them to their own ends." And so. Um, so anyway, the reason I'm mentioning this is quite early on, I started whispering to my wife. I was like, maybe we should 
maybe we should think about going to America because I don't know where this is going. And we pretty seriously discussed it. We talked to American family about it. Uh, I think I said before my wife's Minnesotan. Um, and we were making plans to to get in the car and drive to Melbourne. We're from Adelaide. Melbourne's about nine hours away. Get in the car, drive to Melbourne and get our three kids their American citizenship, their passport, their citizenship, uh, just to be careful, right? And 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 I felt like, yeah, I've got, I've, I'm, I'm kind of seeing where this is going and I'm being proactive. And then just like that, they locked down our borders really oh, wow. early on. I'd love wow. to go back and look at the dates because I don't recall, but it was around the middle of 2020 that they're like, no one's leaving South Australia, my state, South Australia. No one's going out. No one's going in. So you couldn't go to Melbourne. I couldn't go to Melbourne. We couldn't do it. And then George Floyd happened and there was all this crazy stuff going on in the US and we're like seeing it on the screens, we're seeing rioting, we're seeing burning. And so we had a we had a moment of just like, and I was allowed to work, I was still working. Um, I can't remember when I started my private practice, but it was only small. I was still working a lot in the disability sector. So I was considered an essential worker and so was my wife. She was doing the same type of work. So we just put our heads down and we just, you know, kind of kept doing our thing and I was still taking in information, trying to understand what was happening in the world. But so I had a while there where it was like, okay, maybe we'll just sit tight. You know, this is long before the vaccines came online. This is long before that stuff happened. It was just COVID. Um, so my life was able to go on fairly much as normal in Adelaide at that point. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that, that sort of half answers your question. Um, but, no, it's really interesting. Yeah. It sounds like it was when you described this realization that people were really scared of this this virus. It sounds like um, your your anxieties were in what are we what are they beating the drums for here? What's going on? I'm suspicious that there's going to be, as you said, a power grab. Mm -hmm. And so when you were kind of watching this develop and you looked around you and realized people are legitimately scared of this virus. What was that perspective shift like for you? Was it, were you, were you surprised that people were, were buying this and, and taking this in so seriously? Uh, yeah, I basically was like, oh, they've overplayed their hand because I could see that, that, that there was an agenda to try and get all the adults, uh, sorry, all the children vaccinated. Mm -hmm. You know, like in the, the childhood vaccine schedule had been growing and growing and growing. Mm -hmm. As you're probably well aware, the amount mm -hmm. of vaccines that kids get now compared to like in the yeah. 80s, like when we were children. And so, uh, and yeah, it's sort of in that world, in that space, mm -hmm. we were often talking about the fact that they'd love to get all the adults vaccinated, right? Mm -hmm. And in Australia, they were starting to push the um, the flu vaccine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and at that time, they started to make it mandatory for aged care employees to get the flu vaccine. So mm -hmm. if you didn't get that, you lost your job. And so when this all happened, I could see what was happening. And I'm like, oh, they've overplayed their hand because the momentum has been building with this movement and people are starting to realise, hey, you know, the, the, the science of vaccines might be okay, but the way in which they're testing them is certainly not as rigorous or as thorough as we'd been led to believe. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I was like, oh, they've overplayed their hand and people are going to see this. Now, I didn't expect everyone to realise. Of course not. But I expected a lot more to realise mm -hmm. quite quickly. And I really was very surprised just how successful they were at getting people to, you know, stand on the lines and mm -hmm. social distance. And we didn't have to wear masks at first um, in Adelaide, but, you know, wearing masks, even as the science started to come out that like, hey, maybe they're not working. And um, yeah, so short answer is I was surprised. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I felt sort of similarly to you in that regard. Like I didn't, I didn't expect people to um buy into this to the extent that they did and mm -hmm. i also saw and i um my my oldest daughter was injured by a vaccine mm -hmm. in uh 2008 or 9 and 
it caused me to do a lot more thinking and take them more seriously, take the these pharmaceutical products more seriously and and look at each one with a risk benefit analysis rather than just, oh, sure, whatever the doctor's recommending and whatever the, the standard schedule is, let's do that. I now realize that there's individual differences in, in, in people's physiology that might cause people to be more susceptible to injury from viruses or from vaccines or from any any agent, you know, that you're exposed to. So mm. I had had a rethinking of this and I'd since been more tuned into discussions around vaccine mandates and the increasing vaccine schedule. And so um, for me, watching the COVID thing start to develop and the way that it was being talked about, I really read it as a as a vaccine campaign from the beginning. And yeah. as you said, a way to get an adult mandate. Yeah. I I saw that because it had been something people were talking about in the in the vaccine risk awareness community, really. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I read that the same way I think that you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and full context, you know, it just bears mentioning where I'm from. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time COVID came in. We had a situation that if your children weren't fully up to date with the vaccines, which means you have to take all the ones they dictate Mm -hmm. in the order that they dictate them. Mm -hmm. And if you decide, for example, hey, I'm not worried about chickenpox, I'm going to do all of them, but I'm going to leave chickenpox, then you're considered, you know, your child's considered not up to date. And for those families, by the time COVID came in, those families were losing some welfare payments, so some parenting payments. So it was about about thirty dollars every week. And most most families in Australia would get some sort that's of That's a lot. It's a lot. It adds that's up. hundred and twenty dollars a month. Exactly. Yeah. And that's for one child, right? So if wow. you have two or three kids or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um and don't quote me, but it was about that much. And 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 then they then they pulled funding for childcare. So you weren't able to get the extra governmental support to go to childcare, which meant basically you had to have a stay-at-home parent. Um, and that was something like twenty or thirty thousand dollars in a year that you potentially could get in reimbursements for childcare. So then they pulled. Sorry, go on. Oh, I'm curious. Like as you're saying, welfare and childcare reimbursements and stuff. It sounds like there's an that is that just a standard for Australians? Is there a lot of governmental reliance, yes. or is it like it, is. you're taxed heavily, and then this is how you get some of your taxes back? Or Correct. how does that work? Okay, that's exactly how it works. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, as since we've been in the US, I'm understanding that they tend to give you a tax break for having a family, mm-hmm. whereas over there the taxes are the same. But then, but then, you know, depending on your circumstances, but there's a very high percentage of families that will get something. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the really low income families will get significantly more, but even pretty middle class people will still get some money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that might only be the childcare benefit, right? They might not get anything else, but they'll get, when they send their kid off to childcare, they'll get, I don't know, something like 90 or or $100 a day that they can get back. Wow. Well, that sounds like they really encourage and, and create a system of uh, where they're, they're basically taking your money and then doling it out to you the way that, you know, depending on your performance as a citizen. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And no, it is a very socialist type of system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think most Australians have traditionally tended to trust the government. And to be honest, I think there was pretty good reason for that for most of my life. Mm-hmm. Um I don't feel that way anymore, but you know, it's a good mm-hmm. system when the people operating it are trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, so it was the childcare benefit, it was the family payment, and then they went the next level where they actually banned any unvaccinated child from even being able to attend childcare. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I need to be clear on this because I, I sometimes forget that people assume that this would have wouldn't apply to kids that can't have the vaccine for a medical reason. This was across the board, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I think if you had a medical exemption, I'm not even sure if you could have still attended. And the reason I'm so unsure is because I've never met someone with a medical exemption. Mm -hmm. They don't give them out. Mm -hmm. They just, they just like, I actually knew someone who had like 
like a court case who had a medical exemption and was trying to get it accepted and it wouldn't be accepted. Mm. Um, and that's another whole subject. But um, mm. it's not just like, oh, these crazy anti-vaxxers and blah, 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 blah. It's like, no, there's people with little, and I don't think they're crazy anyway, but there's people with legitimate medical issues that were getting kicked out of the system at this point. Mm. Uh, and then the last nail in the coffin, again, this is all pre-COVID, the last nail in the coffin was that, they banned unvaccinated children from attending kindergarten. Um, and that's the step before um, your first year of school. I don't know what you call that. What do you call that here? Pre, Pre-K, preschool? Yeah, preschool. Yeah, yeah. Pre-K. So like yeah. kindergarten so they, is usually five to six years old. Yeah. Yeah. And they banned it mid-year. Okay. So kids that were already in, in South Australia, kids that were already in, oh. in, in kindergarten were already going along, were, were just kicked out. Yeah. We're the only state that did that. Everyone else grandfathered them in. Once they brought that in, they said, all right, these kids can finish the year and so on. Yeah. So, so, anyway, so there's a lot of context, but but that was the context for me going into COVID. So it was like my eyes were already wide open. I was like, there's an agenda here, and it's not yeah. a scientifically based agenda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we were really seeing that more in the mid um, the mid teens, like the, mm. the 2000. Uh, I don't know what year exactly, but I remember when I first realized that what was happening in my daughter's health was as a result of this shot series that she was taking Mm. Um, and, you know, started talking with doctors about this and started researching what the heck I could do and what what had happened. And uh, it it had not previously really been on my radar and it had Mm. not felt like there was a political charge around this issue. And in the as it was something that I was aware of, I started to hear more and more. And I don't know if that's just like an availability bias or something, but but I also do feel like there was a ramping up culturally of this, the the propaganda around around childhood vaccinations. And, oh, and yeah, so yeah. that seems to have really happened over the last decade or so mm. where we've increased. And, and it sounds like this was increasing in Australia quite heavy handed on the part of the government in terms of let's get all these kids vaccinated, let's pressure families so that you can't refuse these. And and that's what, what's interesting about that is that that's including new vaccines that are being added to the schedule. So it might be things that we wouldn't have even been worried about when, say, you and I were kids, you know, hmm. things that we would have had, what, maybe like eight eight shots yeah. that we were getting back then. Maximum, and think, and yeah. now it's, are there... There's 16 or 20 different viruses that we're targeting. I used to know the numbers, but I can't Mm -hmm. can't remember anymore. But, yeah, it's, yeah. And as you say, it's the schedule as well, right? And the schedule is not scientifically based. No. So the schedule in the U.S. is different to the schedule in Australia. Um, there's, there's, I can't remember now, but there's at least one thing that in the U.S. is delayed that in Australia we give really early. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's not like... It's not like this schedule that's been studied to Mm -hmm. see, oh, what's the effect on this young person's developing immune system and how much can they cope? It's just like, here's another one. Let's just throw it in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that, that, that's an interesting topic. If maybe at some point it'd be something to dive into more more deeply. I know there are plenty of places where people do a full examination of this topic, and I think it's very important. So I hope people will, you know, if they are not, if they haven't already been exposed to these this conversation go into it and research it because it's it i think that there's this overly simplistic labeling of people as anti-vaxxers i don't know what that even really means i think that there's just people right. who are yeah. concerned and have done some research and want to consider this a pharmaceutical product like any other which we would have the right to make a full informed consent to and it's been handled really coercively so like you said maybe this you you might not even question the science behind it, but the policy behind it is really it's it's being handled differently than other pharmaceuticals for sure. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, and I agree. There's lots of stuff on this out there. I'm more than happy to go into a different topic. And yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you mentioned that in 2020, in the middle of all this COVID stuff starting, George Floyd happened. You talked about George Floyd's death, and yes, how did and you said you're kind of watching that happen in the US. Mm-hmm. I know mm. from talking to a few people in the UK that there was this sort of strange 
overlap of of like uh, United States race relations being played out in the the in UK. So like they were having some of these Black Lives Matter marches and things that were really kind of relevant to a U.S. racial historical context, but not as much to the U.K., it, at least this is the way that that it felt for them. What was it like being in Australia? And did you have a similar sort of uh, sort of political overlap with that? Yeah, there was. There was. And so um, obviously having a wife from Minnesota and this all happening in Minnesota, it, it, mm -hmm. it caught my attention. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I do. I always tended to follow U.S. politics quite closely for some years now. Um, but yeah, they had really substantial riots in uh, or protests. It wasn't riots as far as I'm aware, but protests, uh, you know, George Floyd type of uh, thing in Melbourne. Oh, really? And, okay. uh, yeah, I, I can't remember the size, but it was big. Okay. Um, and that was right in the middle of lockdowns. And, and Melbourne was the most lockdown country in the world. Or I should say was locked down for the longest time of anywhere in the world really, to use an overused word, draconian, mm -hmm. right? The, the, the guy who's who's the head of that state is really power hungry and, and he really treated his people poorly. Um, but the George Floyd protests were fine, right? They were people, tolerated. They, and... allowed, yeah, they were tolerated, even though at that time it was illegal to protest. They literally wow. made it illegal. Uh, that was fine. Um, and I believe we had some in Adelaide too. I, I didn't go. I don't know a lot about it. And we weren't locked down at that time. But in Melbourne, they were locked down when the protests happened and they were still, uh, you know, a few thousand people. Um, and then it was only a handful of weeks later that they had anti-lockdown protests. And uh, as I'm sure you can guess, they were less tolerant of those. Mm -hmm. And um, they came out and shot the peaceful protesters with rubber bullets. I saw that. That was and really there was horrifying. quite a bit of stuff that went viral, and that mm -hmm. was only, I think I'm remembering rightly, that it was just a few weeks after um, after the George Floyd protests. And so, and we've got our own uh, issues in Australia with Indigenous, with Aboriginal folk, mm -hmm. um, very real, mm -hmm. very very valid issues. Mm -hmm. um, I've worked in that sector. I've, I've you know I've worked with a number of Indigenous people and. Um, there's a lot of generational trauma there and, you know, it's, um, uh, not something I want to, 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 belittle or say is not real or not important. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, the hypocrisy and the disparity of how they treated, you know, uh, different groups of protesters only weeks apart was really confronting. And I think a lot of people observe that, right? I don't think it was lost on, on people. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's really... That's really interesting to see that contrast in such a short amount of time. And what would what would be the justification for the disparate treatment of the protesters in those two scenarios? It's a really good question. Um, I don't remember exactly the, the line that they ran with. I probably have more recollection of what was happening in the US, right, where there was there were these um, news headlines which were trying to say what's well, actually safer to get out on the streets and protest with the George Floyd era. I remember that was some kind of a headline and they had some very strange logic that they were applying. Um, yeah, I'm not exactly sure what, what was being said in mm. Melbourne, um, mm. but they were definitely um, supportive of that despite it technically being illegal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. It really... Really, sort of seems like um, like allowing one channel for people's angst. Here, mm. you can channel your angst into this issue, and it's forbidden in other areas. So here, let's. It's almost uh, like, an encouraging because you've you've built up all this tension in the population, and now we're going to give you a place to put that. And, yes. And yeah, I. Yeah. Yeah, I was just listening to a commentator the other day that was referring to all this. I don't remember who it was, but they were saying. A lot of the people that were out in the street protesting George Floyd, it wasn't a black issue that they were on the streets for. It was all this angst from being locked up in their house and they finally had a a, a sanctioned outlet for that. And I thought, yeah, it's really true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and so in 
all these things are going on and you're observing all these things in, in your country and you're having conversations with your wife and with her family around, maybe we should go to the U S and how did you, how did that progress for you? And how did you make the decision to come over? And was it easy to get out of Australia with the lockdown uh, that's borders? That's a good question. Yeah. It's a good question. Well, we couldn't. And, and, and I, I can't remember exactly. I, I wanted to go back and work it out, but it was over a year we weren't allowed to leave. Um, so our plan to go get those passports was, was literally not available to us for, you know, well over a year. Um, so we just went back into our routine and, you know, we never made a decision uh, in 2020 that we're going to move. It just it was an idea that came up and then it sort of went back down and mm -hmm. we continued on. Um, but yeah, as the, as things progressed with COVID, with the vaccine rollout, eventually we were required to wear masks in Adelaide when most of the world was already stopping. Um, we also had to, they tried two things. They tried to get every Australian in the country to install an app on their phone, which mm -hmm. had location tracking and they wanted everyone to have that. And they were going to track, like track literally 25 million of us or however many people had a phone um, for the sake of knowing where COVID was spreading, right? Uh, that didn't go down so well. I think partly because the app was, I, I don't think it was because people wouldn't put it on their phone. I think the app was pretty useless. I don't think it actually did what it was meant to do. But no. after a little while, they shifted tact and they went to a system where they had QR codes everywhere. Oh, okay. So wherever you went, whether you went to the doctor, the shop, anywhere you went, um, they had a QR code up and you're meant to scan yourself in with a QR code wherever you went hmm. um, so that they could track track the virus, right, track where you were going. Um, you had the opportunity to write down your name, you know, for elderly people that didn't have. Um, and just the way in which I watch my fellow Australians just be like, oh, okay, the government's got our best interests at heart. Let's Let's all let the government track us and you know they're saying oh, of course we will we'll, we won't use the data for you know like we're just keeping the data for covid purely and i'm and i'm thinking yeah of course you will you know of course mm -hmm. you are only going to use it you know but everyone else not everyone but a very high percentage are like oh, no worries i'm happy to scan in and doing doing it for the good of my fellow citizens this type mm -hmm. of thing mm -hmm. and of course 18 months later it comes out that the government gave access to location data or location data records to the police force to you know pursue some criminals and 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 pursue some cases and stuff mm -hmm. and you know maybe people listening along think oh well, that's fair enough and that's fine but uh but it was a breach right they said mm -hmm. they weren't going to do that and they did do that um i never put the app on my phone and i know a lot of people that didn't who are in my kind of circles um but the average australian was was more than happy to go along with that and I think it was through this period that I, I was thinking about and started to conclude uh, the way that I now word it, right, the way I sum it up. Um, for people that are interested why I actually left, the way I explain it to people is that what I've come to understand about America is that there's a constant battle. Battle sounds negative. It's not necessarily a negative thing, but there's a constant dynamic that's going on in American society where you go, okay, what are the individual liberties of, of people? What, what are our individual liberties and, and, and what role should they play in, in a specific context? And what's the collective good? Mm -hmm. And there's this constant push-pull right throughout American history of, okay, how do we do collective good? We still want to respect the individual liberties. And I think that's really at the core of American society. And I came to realise that, both culturally and legally, like the legal dynamics of the Australian context, that that doesn't exist. Hmm. It's heavily biased towards collective good. And nothing wrong with collective good, but it's like who's deciding collective good, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, what I came to realise was, okay, I can't trust the government. We kind of knew that. But I also don't feel like I can trust my fellow Australians to stand up and to advocate for the individual liberties, for our individual liberties, you know, and we saw these these terrible things that were happening to mainly people in Melbourne but other places 
um, where it was an absolute government overreach and, and, and they just became violent towards their citizens. Um, you know, mm-hmm. there was also people that were forcibly removed and put into quarantine camps for their health, even though they um, tested negative to COVID. And um, for me, I came to realize that I'm, I'm cut from a different cloth. I'm not, I'm not like a lot of these people. And there was some amazing people. There's a lady called Monica Schmidt. She started something called Reignite Democracy Australia, and she was doing brilliant advocacy. Um, but for the most part, Australians were happy to trust the government, listen to the government, mm-hmm. go along with the government and do what the government told them for their own good. Mm-hmm. Um, and even on our trip to the US, you know, when we're literally still in transit, I counted maybe two or three people along the way that made some quip about oh, the government, oh, you can't trust the government. And, you know, and it's just, it's just, it's in the psyche here in a way that it's not in Australia. Um, And as I said at the beginning of our conversation, I think that was fair, right? Because I think the Australian government traditionally, you know, I've benefited a lot. It's done a lot for me. It's it's not like, uh, I think there's been more corruption in the American government throughout history than Australia. It's my subjective opinion i don't really know um so i get it um but the degree to which um even now the percentage of aussies that have woken up to to this dynamic is far less than i would have hoped and i just lost absolute faith that if and when not probably if but when the next time something similar happens um i can't really trust my fellow Australians uh, maybe people watching would disagree and yeah mm-hmm. I've I know some amazing people that would have my back uh, but on balance doesn't feel that way and and legally we don't have a bill of rights mm-hmm. there's no free speech in Australia uh, a lady got arrested you probably saw this one it went viral too you know she got a, a pregnant lady got arrested for planning the anti-lockdown protest uh, through posting on Facebook. They came into her house. It's all on camera. They arrested her and they took her Mm. away heavily pregnant um, because there is no free speech, right? So that was Mm. illegal to do. Um, And so even if there was a very high percentage of Australians that were ready to push back, they would have to do something at a legal, you know, have to change the constitution, bring in a bill of rights, uh, put into law, free space, you know, they'd have to do something. And, man, there were so many um, legal court cases that were going through COVID. Um, mm. I donated to a few and they just all, f- no, it just failed, failed, failed. It just, it just, nothing could get traction. Nothing could get traction. It was very disheartening. Mm. Um, so anyway, this, that was a long answer, but, yeah. Yeah, well, it sounds like the system built on a lot of trust and a lot of goodwill that had accrued over time where people had yes. been willing to, give over more and more of their their uh their power to the government because the government was seemed to be serving them well and yeah. really this this has represents a, a major betrayal of that trust Absolutely. for a lot of people who see it the way that that you're describing and mm-hmm. you know it's really interesting this the QR codes and the app and the checking in at all the places and allowing yourself to be tracked and surveilled. I, if I'm remembering the timeline correctly, because it's similar here, it was similar. We had certain like Vax passes and things where you couldn't go into some restaurant or all of the County just South of the County that I live in was, was um, requiring establishments to check vaccines um, status in order to let you in and, make you um, mask to the table, but take your mask off at the table kind of thing. So all these things, the timeline, this is not when the initial thing happened. So like this, this virus comes out, everybody's uncertain about what's going on. There's these lockdowns and stuff. And I, on some level, I can almost understand that. I still don't agree with the government suppressing people's movement the way that they did, but you can understand this like tightening down of maybe there's something out there that's contagious. So we should all just kind of, kind of hide from that and, and stay, you know, stay inside or, or stop moving about as freely. But when these surveillance programs were rolled out, there's so much hypocrisy in it because you're 
you're allowed to go about and do all your daily things, all the normal things, go socialize, go, um, go to a, a bar or a pub or a restaurant or whatever, go shopping as long as you're checking in with the government every step of the way or presenting your papers. And so it's, it's like you said, this, this sort of veneer of this is for the virus. This is to track this virus, but we're acting like we're not afraid of the virus. The virus is just the excuse for the surveillance. And so if the, if the, the government or whoever wanted to big data wanted to track you, they would use an excuse for that. Mm. And so it's just like, this was the excuse. They wouldn't just say, now we're going to start tracking you. They'd have to give some reason. This was that reason. And Mm. people, Mm. uh, you know, the hypocrisy of that, just, it was astounding to watch from over here. And, and I'm I'm sure even more so in a place that was being cracked down on even harder, but Mm. just amazing to watch people willing to allow themselves to be surveilled and controlled to the extent that they were being surveilled and controlled when they're acting as if they're not afraid anymore anyway. Yes. Yes. Well, that, I mean, that context, that moment in time that you're talking about, it was because of the vaccine, right? That was the argument that they were given. And they were saying that if you're, if you're vaccinated, then, you know, you you can't transmit COVID. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not possible. <laughs> but that and was yet we knew true. <laughs> anyone who was looking at the literature, yeah. anyone that was following, people say, "Well, in retrospect, we now realise that it was it was transmiss it was transmissible." But mm-hmm. but but like they'd done studies, and it was well known. Again, anyone who was who was looking that they didn't they didn't actually um, study to see if it was stopping transmission. That mm-hmm. wasn't part of the studies that the the companies did. Um, the tracking that I'm talking about. And if that were the case, I would say, sorry to interrupt you. I just want to add to that, that that if that were the case, then there would have also been a parallel track for people who had already had the infection. Absolutely. So there would have, that would have been another exemption, but that was not, those people were not exempted from the requirements or the vaccine, even though there was a lot of evidence that the vaccine was more dangerous for people who'd already had. Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, the period that I was talking about with our tracking was pre pre vaccines. Okay. So what they were doing where they were were trying to track it and. And they did. Right. They did actually quite successfully keep it small, Mm. Uh, especially in Melbourne. Like I said, they were so locked down. They did actually successfully keep it under control, you know, and if there was an outbreak, they could get the data once they got to the QR code situation and they could follow it, right? Um, And so it's a logical system. It makes sense in terms of trying to prevent it, but it's like very short-sighted. And eventually COVID went everywhere, right? They never stopped it. And and in, in the process, they absolutely decimated the Melbourne economy mm. um, because they kept everyone locked down and they kept tracking it. And they did the same thing in Adelaide. They were tracking it and they were trying to keep it all like locked down. But um, what was the cost, right? Mm-hmm. I know a guy personally that, that took his own life on the first lockdown. He, he couldn't cope with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that's one person I know, but there's, uh, thousands of stories of people mm-hmm. that miss stuff for, for what, for what end, you know, uh, I don't call it a pandemic cause the only person I know that died was not anything to do with the actual, uh, the actual illness. And we knew early on that there were ways of supporting your immune system and treating it and all that. And so in a, in a sense, it was a clever idea, but it was not at all necessary. Mm-hmm. And eventually the virus just spread like wildfire anyway. I mean, I've had it twice mm-hmm. uh, and lots of people have. So um, for me, that's why I was like, okay, this is, a, this is an excuse to track us because mm-hmm. the threat's not substantial. And I hear what you're saying, like really at the very beginning, some people were scared and we didn't understand what was going on. Okay, fair enough. But how long was it? Six months in, we were all starting to realize, um, mm-hmm. you know, it was yeah. pretty quickly established that this isn't going to kill the millions and millions of people that, right. that they thought it would. That um, they were projecting. Yeah, that they were projecting. You know, that was already, well, 2020, I think we knew that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. 
Hmm. Yeah. So, and interesting, I, I want to ask you about, because um, we're kind of talking about COVID. We're also talking about this, these lockdown uh, protests versus the George Floyd protests. And mm-hmm. this, all of these things are, I guess all of these different movements, the, the medical control movement that, that began around 2020, and also the heightened racial tensions that began around the same time that like these, these were things that were in the background simmering, but came to a head around the same time. And a lot of people see them differently. Like there are people who are really, um, against some of the COVID controls, but aren't, are seeing the social justice stuff Mm -hmm. as pretty mild and reasonable to them, you know, going along with the DEI things. And then there's people who are really concerned about the DEI and social justice movements, but not really worried about the medical control because they see that as sensible measures to, Mm -hmm. um, you know, respond to viral attacks or public health measures or whatever. So um, I, I, I wondered about this. There's, there are also a number of people who find that intersection of those two things concerning and representative of one sort of overall authoritarian uh, movement, I guess. Mm-hmm. What do you think? And why do you think some people fall on one side but not the other in, in different ways? So, yeah, I see them as intersecting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I don't necessarily think... Gosh, it's a big question, isn't it? Um, so yeah, you ask, how do I see it and why? I think, I think at the heart of that is empathy, right? And I think a lot of what we're, what we're experiencing is weaponized empathy, using people's empathy against them. And, uh, I have some friends that I talk about this stuff with quite regularly and I'm the odd one out. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, I actually love getting a lot of exposure to a more mainstream view is probably the right way to put it, uh, in, in friends, friends that I love and care about. And we talk about stuff often. And, and it was only recently I was trying to explain my view because whenever I talk, these friends will often, and people in general will often think, oh, Dan thinks it was all perfectly planned, sculptured and, you know, by some shadowy unnamed invisible group, right? And, 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 you know, it's like you make one comment and they go, oh, that's how he thinks it is. And then the only other option is um, any issues or any problems is incompetence. Mm-hmm. And it's been a long, a long, arduous process for me to get to the point where I feel like I personally have a view because I'm like, I'm hearing this, I'm hearing that, I'm, you know, and I have friends that are like really kind of on the other end of the whole conspiracy side of thing. And I, and I, and I absorb information from both. And my personal view is that there's a whole bunch of, um, uh, oh, what was the, what was the word I used? Um, uh, incompetence. Well, you know, this quote, don't ascribe to malice something which can be explained by incompetence. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of incompetence. Mm-hmm. I also know that in society we have around about 3% psychopaths. Hmm. And I think a lot of what people are missing when they're doing a calculation on what is happening in society is they fundamentally do not understand what psychopathy is. They're so trapped in their own experience of being a generally caring, empathetic human being that they actually can't remove themselves from that vantage point to walk over and look at it from another angle and go, what would it be like to be a person that has no empathy, that has no conscience? And if I was a person that had no conscience, what would I do? Um, And we know from the data that, you know, psychopaths are um, statistically overrepresented in powerful positions. And so, um, for me, I think a lot of what's going on, whether it be the COVID context or whether it be the, the DEI context, is there's a lot of opportuni- opportunistic psychopaths um, that really don't care. 
and that will do whatever they need to get power, influence, whatever. Uh, and I think there's a whole bunch of really good-hearted, good-intended people that are misled. I, I love the subline from Jonathan Haidt's book. I don't know if you're familiar with Jonathan Haidt. He's written a few books, and he wrote this book called um, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind. And he has the sign, you're nodding, you know it, right? He has mm -hmm. a subtitle, which is... Uh, why good intentions and bad ideas are destroying a generation. And for me, I see that as the most gracious. It's not like, oh, these woke idiots and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, what's actually happening here? What's the phenomenon here? Because we can't conclude that half the country are just stupid, right? Mm -hmm. We can't conclude that half, half the country are not psychopaths. Mm -hmm. and so I think there's good intentions married with bad ideas mixed with, um, yeah, some planning, right? and some people without conscience that um, has gotten us to the point that we're at. And, you know, we often talk about um, toxic masculinity and, and, and masculine values, but we don't talk much about toxic femininity and feminine values. Mm. And, you know, I think there's a toxic expression of both. Um, you need a balance between, and I don't. We don't need to delve into the complicated world of the masculine and the feminine. But if you're thinking of empathy, right, and nurture and care and compassion, that generally comes under the category of like a feminine thing. I'm a counselor, right? I love empathy and compassion, um, but it can be weaponized, and and people can. I think really good people have been um, hoodwinked into buying into things that aren't really what 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 they appear to be on the surface mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's really interesting i really um uh, i would love to hear more about the toxic femininity from you um i i'm picturing like the devouring mother archetype mm. the, and then the sort of like the 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 nanny state that seems like you're describing with Australia, Australian politics, which I guess, and I, I don't know if this is kind of crass, but the first thought I had wasn't mothering. It was like almost, and I, again, I apologize for this metaphor, but almost pimping, like, mm. you know, give me your, your check and I'll give you what you need to keep you dependent mm. on me. So mm. you'll keep working mm. and giving me money. So that was a different, that's a different, archetype altogether if it's even if it even qualifies as an archetype but it's a different paradigm for sure yeah um but yeah, yeah i'm interested in that and i don't mind delving into the masculine and feminine because mm. i think those mm. are really useful um mm. they're mm. they're very useful pictures to paint mm. yeah probably my apprehension is that oh you know that little thing i was sharing before was you know, the way my personality works is it does take me a long time to feel like I conclude because I'm quite open-minded and I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, what am I missing? What am I not getting? The right's telling me something. The left's telling me something. I'm absolutely convinced there's truth in both. I want to get the truth from both. That's why I love the name of your channel, right? The Radical Centre. It speaks to where I, I feel I'm very in the centre and that's a radical way, way to be. Um, and I don't feel like I've fully landed the plane yet on understanding at least what I mean or at least what I think those two terms mean. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I struggle to put it into words. It's kind of more of a thing that's evolving at the moment. I was talking to a friend about this recently and he was speaking to that. Um, but I'm absolutely convinced that a, 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 a chunk of what we're experiencing, and I've got to say what I've experienced since I've come to the U.S., is a more feminized culture. Mm -hmm. um, again, that's not a bad thing, mm -hmm. uh, but, but when does that go too far? Mm -hmm. And what I've noticed coming here is that the men that I meet, I've, I've often had a bit of a hard time building connections with men back in Australia. I'm not stereotypically masculine. I'm not big into sport. There's been there's a few aspects of me which works, but traditionally to connect with men, but traditionally I've, I've, not, I've not fit the mold. And since I've come here, I connect with men more easily. I'm finding that the men here are more, um, and I knew this actually before because I've, 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 I've had a lot of interactions with Americans over the years, um, but they're, they're kinder. 
they're softer. And I'm in Minnesota, so we get the Minnesota nice phenomenon. Um, uh, and it's been lovely. Um, but on the contrary, I also I can also see that a lot of them are beaten down. Hmm. They've, they've got a lack of confidence and groundedness in their in their sense of self and i think it is a flow-on effect from all the narratives out there about um yeah toxic masculinity or or or, um uh you know masculine um privilege male privilege Mm -hmm. and all this Mm -hmm. sort of stuff um and so that's been pushed down whilst on the same time the other side the other the other values are being pushed up and i know for a long time i was like unconsciously my view on what does a man doing emotions better look like and i would have never said this out loud but it was like oh men just need to be more like women Hmm. right men are too emotionally cut off true Hmm. what do they do well they need to be more like women Hmm. and it was a while back i heard someone say men do emotions differently to women. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's true. Mm -hmm. I want to see men that are connected to themselves that are grounded, that are emotionally intelligent, that can cry, that can express themselves. Um, but just out and out rejecting their masculinity and their masculine traits to then embody femininity and feminine traits it doesn't work. And I think that the the best kept secret that no one's really talking about the elephant in the room is that women don't find that attractive. Mm-hmm. Man who just shows up like a woman, most women don't find that attractive. And uh, I've worked with enough couples and, you know, we touch on these sort of subjects and they're like, no, I want him to have an opinion. I want him to stand up for himself. They don't want an asshole, right? But the, you know, there's, 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 there's a lot of room between asshole who just does whatever he wants. And I meet those and pushover that has no backbone and that only ever wants to be um, compassionate, empathetic, and never and never push their own, let's say, agenda or their own desires. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something I've noticed. Noticed the contrast in Australia. We get, um, I'm, I'm, I get more of this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, assholes <laughs> or like, you know, or, you know, so the men are more masculine. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but, 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 but it's probably a, a roundabout way of saying that too much femininity where it becomes authoritarian and, and bitchy, right? Bitchy and back. I mean, what's cancellation? Mm-hmm. What's cancellation? Cancellation is not a masculine phenomenon. What would no. Amanda He'd go punch him in the nose, right? He wouldn't whisper behind, "Oh, I'm going to ring the employers and I'm going to get them fired." You know, that's that's a that's a that's a feminine type of an energy. Um, so I think the pendulum swung. We don't want we don't want everyone punching someone in the nose or, or wars, right? I mean, that's a very you know, but we 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 don't want uh, bitching and backstabbing and 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 this overly like everyone's walking around on eggshells. Cause everyone's scared, like, Oh, what's happening? And everyone's whispering behind, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe I do have more thoughts on the, 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 the toxic femininity than I realized I could, I could kind of articulate. Um, um, and it's something that I'm passionate about as a counselor, because I want to see a healthy, you know, I'm very Jungian. I want to see a healthy integration mm-hmm. of the masculine and the feminine. We both, we all have both in us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really feminine. Uh, I also like to listen to heavy metal and ride electric skateboards, right? And to, to pick a stereotype, of course, women can do that too. But um, uh, in my younger days, I, I punched people, you know, like as a teenager, not something I'm proud of. But, you know, so it's like I never used to understand what's happening for me. It's, I'm, I'm some weirdo. And it's like, no, it's good to have both. Mm-hmm. We need both. Mm-hmm. Um, so I embrace that now, but once upon a time, you know, I was, I was a bit confused by that. And I think that's the thing that makes me sad is that, you know, we're having a phenomenon now of, of tomboys becoming extinct. You know, if, 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 if a girl or a woman shows male traits, well, she must be a man. Maybe mm-hmm. she's, maybe she's trans, right? Like I always got along well at school with tomboy girls, you know, like, and, and I'm whatever you would call the equivalent of a man. I'm kind of like that. I'm like the male version of it, you know, like I always got along with the girls. I always like talking about emotions. Um, I never had problem crying. Um, so, 
Yeah. That's really fascinating. And I, um, I think that there's so much still to explore there. And I feel like something you said about um, being really open and, and not necessarily coming quickly to conclusions for yourself, but rather just being open to exploring things that really resonates and for with me. And I, I feel like as you're talking about that, I, I want to go down so many different tangents and, and I start to think, well, yeah, and that kind of answers this, but then I'm like, no, there's, there's maybe there's a counter. Oh, it just feels like there's so much richness in that, that way of conceptualizing oh, things. And I appreciate you just dipping a toe into that mm-hmm. I, something I really appreciate also is when you're talking about not writing people off so simply for their beliefs and not just not um, chalking up the compliance with the whatever you want to call it, the the cultural movements mm-hmm. that we're seeing, mm-hmm. not chalking that up to some kind of moral failing or, or personality mm-hmm. failing in mm-hmm. a person, but rather it's just people uh people do have their own reasons for being uh, hooked in or going along with certain things i mm-hmm. i i appreciate that i think that it's really easy to call people names or dismiss them or you know this this whole thing about sheep uh, and you know yeah. the, the yeah. you know the names that we call people um for for going along with the things that we are concerned about Mm, they mm. can be very dismissive and yes. you're right it, it, weaponized empathy is a really good way to look at it because there mm, is certainly mm. you see a lot of this this uh what looks like misguided and misdirected compassion this kind of almost you you watch these people who are at these um i've seen recently these trans rights uh protesters who are protesting speakers and things and you almost get this like mama bear energy, like we're protecting the thing that we picture when we picture this vulnerable group or this vulnerable individual, you know? And so there is, it's a sense that you almost, there's a schema in their mind of what they're protecting. And it's different than the schema in my mind that I I would protect it from a different angle. I would feel protective yes. in a different way, but that motivation in there isn't something that's just so easily dismissed and maligned. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good impulse. It's just being um, directed at the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's the easy and lazy path to just think whoever in the degree disagrees with me is, is wrong and they're evil. Right. You know, like, mm-hmm. as I said earlier, like half the country, well, it's not half, but you know, left and right is, is, is close to half, half, kind of half a country that's evil. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think there's truth in both sides. Yes. Yeah. And and that's the, that's the thing. I mean, people have probably heard me say this a bunch of times because it was a really shocking moment for me. But when my faculty advisor at my graduate school, when I was training to become a counselor, told me that they knew that they weren't training counselors who would be able to work with Trump supporters. We know we are no longer training counselors mm-hmm. who can work with the Trump supporters, what she said. And to me, that was exactly what you're talking about it's the vilification demonization and the dismissal of half the country because at this point you're you're what even is a trump supporter is a question right like yeah so that's that's its own question to open up but Mm, mm. but to turn around and do that back is not the way to to heal and move forward totally Totally. And it's so sad for for you and I in this, in this world, right? Because, you know, we care about the counseling field and like counseling's just listening. I mean, one-on-one counseling, I mostly do couples. It's quite different, but one-on-one counseling, it's like, it's totally irrelevant. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had, I have, I had a client at the moment um, and I'm going to say very little because I just want to, you know, really honor that privacy, but I have a client at the moment who, if you wrote down our beliefs on a sheet of paper, we'd probably diverge nearly everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it doesn't bother me in the slightest. I genuinely like the person mm-hmm. and they're coming back. So I assume they like me too, right? Mm-hmm. We're more than our beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, yeah, I, I yeah. agree. I agree with what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I guess this is a good place to draw to a close because we've been talking yeah. for a while. But I really sure, appreciate sure. it, and I feel like there's so many things that we've we've discussed that I could ask you more about, and uh, yeah, I've yeah. really enjoyed this conversation very much. Hmm. Yeah, me too. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I haven't done. I said. I think off off before we started recording. Like I run a podcast, mm-hmm. and uh, it's not video, and we edit it. So mm-hmm. doing this is new, and it's um it's good for me because I've been wanting to get into doing some video content. Um, maybe I'll plug just quickly the, the yeah. Podcast, please, please is... do, and and any links that you want to direct people to as well. Yeah, if you have yeah. a personal website or anything. So yep. yeah, please. So my and maybe you can include this because my accent always confuses people. Uh, but my website is danielanier.com. So www.danielanier.com. And, uh, yeah, you can find what I do. Uh, it's a new website, so it's got all, all the details on there. You can book in. I work with couples a lot, but I also work with people around personality typology. Um, I really, really know the Myers-Briggs system mm. well at this point. I've done, and I've worked with a lot of people on that now. Uh, I also know the Enneagram. Um mm. Not as well, but but I know I know well that that was the most transform transformative thing for me personally, learning my enneagram type, and um, I do work with a percentage of of men uh, around sort of life transitions as well. Quite quite passionate about you know transitions from the first to second half of life and that kind mm-hmm. of world. Um, and then in terms of my podcast, it's called Convergently Speaking. Uh, and it's what we're talking about, right? I- I'm passionate about seeing how things converge. Where's the convergence of of ideas? How can we bring some unity? The podcast isn't. I, I, when I named it, I was like, oh, I'm going to do this philosophy podcast with. You know, I was like, I'm not a philosopher, right? I, I can't do that. It, it's um mostly around personal growth and personality type. And more recently, we've gone more directly into relationships. So. I do all sorts of topics and have guests on uh, looking at relationships and how you can improve your relationship with with yourself and your relationship with others as well. So, yeah, feel free to check that out. And, um, yeah, if people want to send me an email, it's just hello at daniellanier.com. Uh, but you can easily do that through my website as well. Excellent. Well, I'll include all of those links in the description under the video. So if anybody wants to check those out, please do. And thank you again, Daniel. It's been really great to speak with you. Yeah, no, it's been really good. Thank you.